Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is thinker, writer, and philosopher, Forrest Landry. This is the second time Forrest has been on the show. He also appeared back in EP31, where we engaged in a pretty broad survey of his thinking on various topics. Howdy, Forrest. Good to chat with you again. Hello. It's good to be here. Yeah, great to have you back. It's going to be a fun adventure into ideas. Today, we're going to go deeper into one facet of his work, which I think we touched on briefly in EP31, and that is the work he calls Imminent Philosophy. That's with an A, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. And while he has a book on it floating around, he recommended, and after comparing the two, I agreed, that the website version is considerably more readable and kind of further along in his thinking. It's a god-awful URL, so I'm not going to try to give it to you over the air here. Come to the episode page at jimrutt.com, and we'll have a link to the much more accessible website version of the work. Now, when you hear something called eminent metaphysics, regular listeners of the show are thinking, Jim is definitely going to say, when I hear the word metaphysics, I reach for my pistol, which I say all the time. But guess what? You'd be wrong. Forrest's work isn't that annoying, all too common sort of metaphysics where people just make some shit up and ask you to believe or have faith. Rather, he's attempting something different and doing a serious attempt to build an understanding of the universe for some pretty basic fundamentals. Whether he succeeds or not, it's another story, but it's a serious attempt and does not qualify for my metaphysician's pistol. And so while not annoying and not metaphysics pistol worthy, the work that we're going to talk about does cause me to have a little bit of what I call knee-jerk against the philosopher's disease, which is the desire to have firm foundations. I suppose my pragmatist kind of self wonders if firm foundations aren't impossible and or useless, but I could easily be wrong. So before we get into the details, which we're going to get into details, people are going to get into some real details. Forrest, why is this effort towards an imminent metaphysics a worthwhile undertaking? I think in the world today, there's a lot of places where we're finding ourselves confronted with important choices. Um, you know, I think a lot about things like existential risk and civilization design, and uh, all of these sort of relate back to, uh, in a lot of ways, ethical concerns, values, and things like that. Uh, so somewhere along the way, it became kind of important to really understand, you know, what is the nature of choice? How do we make choices? Is choice even real? Um, there's obviously a lot of debate uh, in in the scientific community, particularly. Uh, you know, as to, you know, about this notion called free will uh, as a philosophical uh, premise. And so somewhere along the way, it, it became important to really understand, you know, what are these concepts? How do they work? Um, you know, what kinds of things can we learn from this so that when we're thinking about how to do uh, choice making at community levels, for example, that that's, uh, that that's sensible, that it's grounded, that it actually uh, works. So for instance, how do you uh, conceive of the notion of goodness. How do you need, conceive of the notion of choice? Uh, you know, what is the basic uh, methodology by which we can know anything at all, basically? 
we have, you know, obviously our firsthand experiences and we learn things, you know, we have this huge body of knowledge, um, all sorts of literature and scientific knowledge and technical knowledge, uh, things that we've built and so on. And, you know, to make sense of all of that, to really understand the implications about, um, you know, what, it, what this all means, why it matters um, and how we can basically do uh, better design, do better choice making uh, individually and collectively. So a, a lot of this work is oriented in, in various ways to to essentially get at those kinds of questions. Yeah, that seems to me certainly worthy and kind of different than you know metaphysics in the high philosophical tradition. You know, thinking particularly about Kant and Aristotle, both of whom I dug into in some detail over the years. And when they talk about metaphysics, they're talking often about you know, the nature of the ground of being in Kant's case, but Aristotle's actually also, they acknowledge that they're talking about theology. And that doesn't seem to be the domain that you're exploring here. In fact, you know, you define your domain for metaphysics more crisply, much more crisply and narrowly, maybe, as an inquiry into the nature of the relation between self and reality. And then in your briefest statement of it, you say, the interaction between the subjective and the objective. Could you take that highest level concept and statement of what you're doing and essentially compare it and contrast it to the historic meaning of the word metaphysics, and maybe especially if you're up on it, on Aristotle and Kant? Sure. Um, so, you know, one of the primary ideas uh, behind metaphysics uh, was essentially two questions. What is and how do we know? So, you know, what is uh, goes into, you know, study of existence and we get into this whole thing about you know, what is ontology? What is the nature of being? And that has a whole history talking about atomic theory and things like that. Um, and then the other part of it, which is, you know, how do we know anything? What is the nature of knowledge? What is this uh, phenomenology of consciousness by which we can apprehend and perceive things in any way at all? This whole branch of questioning basically is, is wrapped up under the label called epistemology. So between the questions of what is and how do we know ontology and epistemology um, is pretty much the, the domain of, of what metaphysics talks about, uh, at least historically, uh, so far as I understand it. I mean, there's other branches. There's uh, axiology, for example, that talks about you know what's valuable. Um, there's obviously aesthetics, which has to talk about what's beautiful. So we can um, you know start to extend from this uh, metaphysical premise about what is and how do we know to how do we know what's beautiful? How do we know what's valuable or what's meaningful. And, you know, basically from there, you could kind of springboard into uh, more common topics of philosophy, you know, the good, the true, and the beautiful and things like that. So in effect, you know, there's, there, there is a kind of deep relationship between these historical ways of thinking about metaphysics and um, what I'm looking at in terms of the relationship between the subjective and the objective, because uh, as, as a premise or as a starting point, I basically said, well, the relationship between the subjective and the objective is real. I mean, otherwise, we wouldn't even have a, a way of thinking about or talking about any of this. And that uh, if we're going to think about perception and also about choice, you know, perception and expression uh, in a kind of rudimentary terms, we're looking at that connection between the subjective and the objective. We're really in inquiring into, you know, what is the nature of the flow from the objective to the subjective that we would call perception. So in effect, we can sort of remodel our uh, thinking is being in terms of the perceived, that would be the objective, the perceiver, that would be the subjective, and perceiving as a process itself. And so uh, we would say, okay, well, ontology and epistemology attached to perceiving, 
and that uh, from you know an understanding of the nature of this perceiving that we can understand something maybe about the the nature of the perceiver and the perceived um, and and so when you when you look at uh, scientific knowledge for example and this is starting to come forward uh, to to think more about uh, Kant uh, as a philosopher there's an observation that you know the the, the notion of perception itself isn't necessarily going to give you perfect information about what is perceived um, and and for that matter it's not going to give you uh, perfect information about the perceiver either. Uh, in fact, uh, when you go forward in physics, you you see something along the lines of um, you know they start talking about electromagnetism and light and so on, and and it it happens that light can't perceive itself. So in other words, I, I could have two laser beams and they could just cross in space. The the wave fronts just go right through one another, and so in effect, there's a, there's no interaction between two photons. Um, they they have to interact through you know essentially uh, another another process uh, electrons and things like that. So in effect, you know if somebody's looking at the wall and I'm looking across them um, you know out the window, I'm not going to be able to see their seeing. I can only see the things that they can see. So I I can't perceive the perceiver. I can't perceive perception. I can only perceive what is the object of perception, i.e. the perceived. So of the three phenomena, you know, perceiver, perceived, and perceiving, that perception can only really actually perceive one of those. Um, so in effect, when, when, when Kant was looking at all this, he was basically saying, well, as, as a result, you know, if we're going to uh, treat the objective as being real, uh, and this is a slight distinction between the way he does it and the way I do it, but, um, you know, if you treat the objective world as, as, as existing, um, then to some extent, perception itself isn't going to give you perfect information. And so he rejected the notion of metaphysics because he says, well, um, you know, we're, we're really trying to learn about the objective. We're trying to learn about what exists. Uh, whereas in my own work, um, I basically uh, distinguish between the notion of to exist, to be real, and to be objective. Um, so in effect, there's, there's, you know, a lot of philosophical literature, there's a lot of overlap between these terms. But there are actually three distinct claims. To say that something's existing is not to say that it's real. There are, th there are some things that are real that do not exist. Um, there are also things that uh, could be described as existing, but it's really hard to have a clear notion of what it means to say that they're real. Um, and moreover, there are things that are objective that don't exist and so on. So in effect, there's this, uh, this you know, when we're, when we're being really careful and we're really looking at foundations in a deep way, sometimes it becomes really important to notice that these distinctions matter. And, you know, while I, I don't necessarily need to get into all that right now, I, I can certainly point out that in my own inquiry that there's, there's some overlap with, um, you know, earlier philosophers in the sense that we're talking about the same sort of things. We're starting with the same sort of foundations. Um, and I think that in contrast to some of the earlier work that's being done in this space, I'm taking the notion of relationship between subjective and objective as being its own ontological class. Uh, in effect, to say that the relationship between the perceiver and the perceived is actually more fundamental, that the process of perception is more fundamental than both the perceiver and the perceived, and that in effect, uh, we can only really know the nature of the objective and the subjective through the mediology of the relationship between them, and that that relationship between them is neither a proper content of the objective nor a proper content of the subjective, uh, but is literally um, a fundamental notion in itself that's not uh, although relatable and is not separable from those other concepts, is not the same as them. Uh, so in one sense, we could say things like the relationship between content and context is neither an element of the content nor an element of the context. Um, 
that is effectively uh, its own uh, concept, its own category. And so from that premise, we can start to see, well, actually, this this notion of relationship as being fundamental shows up everywhere. It shows up in the relationship between, say, truth and falsity, like the the number zero and the number one. Well, the relationship that distinguishes that a zero is not a one and a one is not a zero is essentially a different thing than the concept of zero and the concept of one. And that, uh, in effect, uh, this idea of relatedness, uh, you know, which is encoded in um, much of science and, and understanding of the world, uh, general relativity is obviously a relativity concept. Um, that relationship, relativity, and things like that uh, turn out to be really, really powerful tools for understanding uh, things like choice, causation, uh, change, and, and 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 really basic concepts and the relationship between the subjective and the objective. All right, well, that's a good start. I think we'll move on from there. Somewhat uncharacteristically. There's one key term that you do not define, or at least if you did define it, I didn't find the definition because you carefully define a lot of things that you use, and that is self. It comes up a lot. Could you take a shot at defining self in the sense that you want it to be considered in, in this work? There is actually a definition, but it shows up in the second volume. So the effective choice has a, has a description of this. Self, in the way that I'm thinking about it here, is effectively the product of all the choices you have made and all the choices you could make. Um, and I know this sounds like a really obscure way to, to, to think about this concept, but on the other hand, it, it turns out to, to have a lot of utility for figuring out things downstream in, in a number of different areas. But the idea here is that you know, if, if we had a, a real notion of choice, which is something that um, you know, is, is developed uh, elsewhere in this work, um, then the, the notion of self in the sense of having memory or having uh, capacity um, you know, desires and, 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 and sort of whole constellation of what we think of as mind and body and the interaction that both of those have with the world at large. So, you know, whether we're uh, working on issues associated with the hard problem of consciousness or we're working with issues having to deal with, um, you know, philosophical concepts such as ethics and aesthetics, you know, somewhere along the way, we, we, we do want to ground that notion and to say that uh, the notion of self is, 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 is characterized in terms of choice. And that, you know, in effect, with, without having um, some real connection between the subjective and self and choice, that, that, that we're not really making the same sort of inroads that, say, uh, the notion of causation as applied to the objective has, has enabled uh, science and technology to be uh, truly effective in, in, in creating worthwhile things in the world. So in, in the same sort of sense that we can talk about the perceiver, perceived, and perceiving as being a a fundamental triplicate uh, where where axiom three, you know, distinct and separable, non interchangeable applies, and where axiom one, uh, the relationship's more fundamental than the perceiver and the perceived, uh, that the perception is more fundamental. Uh, we can say that there's this triple of choice, change, and causation, and that if we want to understand the nature of the relationship, we're looking at change. If we want to understand the nature of the objective, we're looking at causation. And if we want to understand the nature of the subjective, we need to think about choice. So in, in this sense, um, the, the notion of self as characterized in terms of choice, and you notice the, the formulation is essentially, uh, it's, it's, it's a summation of past choices, a summation of future choices, and those two things taken as units are then multiplied together. So you end up with essentially a, uh, a dimensionality uh, increase in the sense that we're talking about uh, both actuality, what has been, and potentiality, what could be. Uh, so effectively, your memory plus your capabilities. 
so in this sense, uh, you know, thinking about that as a product space is is important for a number of technical reasons. But um, I hope that helps to at least clarify uh, some aspects of how I think about and define the term self. Yeah, that's very helpful. And it's not far from what I interpolated, but it's very good to hear it from you. Now, regular listeners to the show know that one of my fascinations and hobbies is studying the domain of quantum interpretation. Some people would even say quantum mechanics is a biased term. Call it quantum foundations or quantum interpretations. And in the book, you do talk a bit about the relationship of your perspective of a self to quantum mechanics. And we talk about the status of the observer, et cetera, in the world. And I'm quite interested in how foundational, I should step back a minute to remind people that there are several interpretations of quantum mechanics, some of which an observer is critical. Penrose, for instance, Bohr probably, Bohr is so obscure, it's hard to say what the hell he actually means. In others, the concept of measurement is fundamental and whether there's an observer or not is irrelevant. And then there are additional quantum foundational theories in fact, some of the more modern ones in which neither observers nor measurement are actually fundamental in quantum mechanics, and rather the concept of decoherence through various mechanisms is fundamental. So is your theory built upon and falsifiable around the concept of the role of self as observer in quantum systems? Well, I should probably back up a little bit simply because uh, I have a fairly nuanced opinion about all this, as you may, may have guessed. I'm sure you do. So do I. <laughs> yeah. So just, just to clarify, I mean, you know, f- first of all, I'm, I'm still thinking about the relationship between the subjective and objective. So of the various interpretations, the ones that tend to focus on the notion of measurement itself uh, are, are ones that I tend to prefer or think more, uh, more about. Um, I, I still feel that I'm learning about all the various interpretations. There's a lot of them out there. Um, but but basically, uh, as 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 just an orienting perspective, the first thing that I look for is is you know how is the relationship described. So when I think about uh, and I'm I'm going to use the word quantum mechanics as much out of habit as anything else. Uh, I, I didn't realize that there may be uh, political or social uh, implications with the notion of mechanics itself. But um, in, in in some respects, you know, thinking about the topic, what I'm what I'm really thinking about, at least as far as my understanding of the topic is concerned is how do we understand the nature of the relationship between, say, the space of possibility and probability and the space of forces in time? So in other words, uh, when, when you think about the sort of dynamics of you know, what's being calculated and, and, and what do the formulas uh, represent, uh, it's sort of an evolution of you know, various probabilities over possibilities. And that the measurement essentially is a coupling of these uh, as forces in time. Um, and this is in contrast to thinking about things like uh, general relativity, which tends to conceive of things in terms of patterns, uh, in this case, mass, in space, and how those influence uh, how we think about force and time. So in other words, time is uh, wrapped up into a dimension of space and forces uh, conceived as a kind of tensor uh, over space. So if I if I just look at it in a very general sort of way, then then the relationship between quantum mechanics and general relativity, uh, one of them has to do with uh, patterns in space relative to forces in time, and the other has to do with uh, probability over possibility to forces in time. And that uh, because the two theories have 
different ways of thinking about the nature of time and also of force, incidentally, but uh, that, that, that we've, we've come against this sort of irreconcilability between quantum mechanics and general relativity as, as primary theories of, of, of thinking. Um, but in, but in, in the way that I think about things, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not so wrapped up in the concepts of interpretation per se as I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of you know, what is actually happening as a sort of phenomenology of the uh, theories themselves. So in other words, uh, not so much uh, just the phenomenology of, of the observed results of experiments being performed, but uh, essentially what concepts are put in what kinds of relationships to one another. So in other words, uh, looking at the mathematics as a kind of uh, prelude to philosophical thinking or thinking about the philosophy as essentially being encoded in the math. Um, so, so when we're looking at uh, interpretations, I mean, obviously that's 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 a lot of the practice. But I find that it's 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 more fruitful to sort of take these abstract views about, you know, what what is the theory actually doing? Like, what what are the fundamental relationships that it's encoding? So, in this particular sense, I like I said, I if if we're, if we're looking at sort of a coupling between probability over possibility to um, force over time, then to some extent, I'm thinking about it in terms of say signaling theory or um, you know, measurement as a kind of information theoretic process. Um, and so then I end up leaning more towards, say, uh, physics from Fisher information, if you're uh, familiar with that work. Uh, and so, so in, in that particular sense, I, I found that to be uh, probably the closest rendering to uh, how I think about a lot of these topics. And I hope that's an answer to your question. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a good good statement of your position. And uh, the reason I push back on this is that regularly philosophers tend to come in on quantum mechanics and take a perspective. I talked to a philosopher yesterday on the podcast, Alexander Bard, and he did the same. And I like to point out that while there are you know, now at least a dozen or more live quantum foundational theories, it's amazing and annoying that there is yet not a single experiment that differentiates among them. And so that choosing a specific perspective, like one in which probability is a fundamental concept, might be wrong. You know, there are models of quantum foundations that are all st so far still consistent with all the experiments, some of which have no probability in them at all, radically deterministic, some of which have localism preserved, though, as you point out, the Bell inequalities and the broader Bell theorem rule out a, only a certain class of hidden local variable forms of locality. And in reality, there are plenty of other foundations in which locality is preserved, though sometimes at the cost of probability. And so I'm always warning philosophers, be careful about picking one of the interpretations and planting your philosophical flag on it, because at least so far, there's no principled way to choose amongst them other than taste, essentially. Well, I, I think that that may actually be uh, an outgrowth of, of, a, of a different kind of question. So, for example, when, when I think about what physics is for, it's, it's, it's a modeling process by which we answer why questions. Um, and when I think about what metaphysics is for, I think about it as a, a kind of descriptive process to answer what questions. You know, and obviously, when we get to things like technology, we're actually asking yet a different question, you know, how do we do something? So, um, in effect, the, the models that are created by physics are very useful to answering how questions. And to some extent, we can consider those models themselves as being the object of what questions. Um, but obviously, there's the reality of the world. And so, you know, the whole phenomenology of doing experiments uh, as, as a process, you know, kind of a first-person perspective where we take an idea and we test it. Um, you know, that's, that's essentially a, 
a, a sort of interactive process where, where we're attempting to try to just answer, you know, what is the case? When we think about, you know, what are metaphysics, um, you know, as, as, as a thing, what is for? Well, uh, personally, I, I, I treat it as a kind of uh, toolkit to create clear concepts that can then be used by things like uh, science, um, physics in particular, but also things like computer science, where we're, we're trying to develop uh, methodologies of how do we think about programming languages, for example. So um, in this sense, uh, you know, in the same sort of way that mathematics tries to uh, create uh, tool sets to use for various uh, applied things, obviously mathematics has this whole thing of, of exploring uh, relationships and concepts just for their own sake and maybe discover later that they're useful for some function. Or not, by the way, right? Or not. Yeah, right. Yeah, let's don't go down the physics, mathematics, how, why are they related rat hole. We'll be here all afternoon. Exactly. Okay. Fair, <laughs> fair, fair enough. But I would definitely suggest that, you know, part of the reason why there hasn't been uh, very many proposals put forward that would effectively try to distinguish which interpretation of quantum mechanics is uh, supposedly the relevant one is, is, is simply because um, the, the, the methodology of interpretation itself is a is a what question rather than a than a why question. So it, it, I, I, I don't myself have the expectation um, that it would produce uh, things in the norm of experimental process as much as I would have the expectation that it would produce things in the norm of uh, clarification, i.e. a reifying process. So for example, the value of the metaphysics uh, isn't so much in terms of uh, whether or not it produces uh, ex testable experiments, uh, but whether or not it produces concepts that clarify how to think up testable experiments. So, for for example, you know, what are we what are we actually asking? Like, can we clarify the question well enough so that the experiment that we do tells us something that we didn't know? Or, you know, do we discover after the fact? Oh well, let's see. There's a whole bunch of loopholes the way that experiment was done. Um, that you know didn't really answer this question, and so now we have to do the experiment again, or at least a variation of the experiment that tries to close these these loopholes. As I remember with the with the Bell theorem in particular, there was, you know, there was an experiment done, and then a bunch of people said, well, it didn't address this, it didn't address this other thing, and so on and so forth. So they did another version, and then, you know, I, I think they took uh, something like four or five, maybe even seven tries before uh, producing a version of the experiment that was sufficiently clear that uh, people basically stopped asking, you know, is this a real thing or, or, or you know, can, can, we, can we find a loophole? They, they kind of gave up on that approach and, and moved on with other questions. Yeah, it's interesting that indeed, finally, the consensus view is EPR has been shown to be true, right? That Bell's inequality is violated by quantum mechanics, which has some very interesting implications. But then it's very interesting that the theoreticians then came up with other foundational formulations which had attributes such as locality, which at first it seems like the violation of Bell's inequality rules out, but it turns out it doesn't. So even once you close the experimental loophole, then people are looking for theoretical loopholes and they're finding them by the dozens. But anyway, let's move on from that. This is very interesting. I think I see the distinction that your metaphysics and metaphysics in general could be useful in thinking about this, but probably doesn't stand or fall. For instance, there are some words in your book that one could read as saying that you support non-localism. And one would then say, if localism was found to exist, then maybe your system falls. But that does not seem to be the case. No, I, I yeah. I, for, first of all, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm just looking for what concepts have the greatest reifying power. So in other words, the greatest clarifying capacities. 
Um, and so in a sense, when we're looking at, say, the Bell theorem, I'm thinking about uh, locality as basically being an idea associated with causation. And to the sense that, uh, you know, an entanglement doesn't necessarily provide a way for uh, signaling from, from one place to another in a faster than light way, um, that, that really what we're basically saying is that the causation itself travels through space in a time-limited way, whereas the connectivity, the, the notion of correspondence itself uh, doesn't necessarily require that. That's a good way to say that. And in fact, it's compatible with both sides of the locality, non-locality argument. So that's good. Well, this would be an example of reifying power. So in other words, the, the fact that I can make that description relatively easily and to do so in a way that's consistent uh, with already understood uh, ways of thinking about these topics is part of the reason why I think the metaphysics has value. Ah, good. Let's move on to getting something closer to the core of your work, and that is choice kind of generally considered. Let me read a little quote from the work. Metaphysics is specific in that anything that is inherent in the essential nature of choice itself is applicable to every choice that one makes. Could you expand on that? I mean, that's a pretty damn dense sentence. Well, it's... it's, it's <laughs> okay. So if, if, if we say that something is intrinsic to the nature of comparison, or we say that something's intrinsic to the nature of causation, i.e. that you can't really even have a nature of causation without thinking about time, uh, a before and after, that there's a notion of state before and state after, and that there's a consistency of the before and after relationship, um, that, that, that in this particular sense, the, uh, the idea here is, is that uh, similar attributes could be associated with the notion of choice uh, in the same sort of way that we can sort of think about causation in a fundamental way. We can think about choice in a fundamental way and that uh, anything that we identify as intrinsics to the nature of choice that's, that's inherently true about the concept itself uh, is going to be realized in any uh, experience of that concept or any practice of that concept or, or uh, any instance in which that concept has being. Um, so, so in this particular sense, you know, I'm not, I'm not actually claiming anything other than um, that the notion of choice has a kind of coherency to it, the same way that the notion of causation has a kind of coherency to it, and that it's, it makes sense for us to examine the concept of choice because that helps us to uh, characterize, you know, the kinds of principles that would be relevant to thinking about things like, say, good choices or wise choices. Um, so, in effect, you know, to uh, become clearer about how to make choices, uh, it is useful to know, notice and know things about what the nature of choice is, uh, just, just in the same way that as a scientist, I would want to know something about what the nature of causation is, particularly if I'm going to be studying that. And we'll dig into that later in more detail as you lay out some of these distinctions about distinctions, essentially, right? Another concept you have, and let's hit on this one relatively quickly, Again, we could go on for days about it, and that's the distinction between interaction and relation. So <laughs> you mentioned earlier about, say, uh, physics and mathematics. So relation is atemporal. So in other words, no time. And mathematics, for the most part, is just talking about structures of relationships. Um, and you don't need a temporal element. So in other words, if I prove something to be true uh, in mathematics, then it, it has always been true before I even knew that. Uh, and it will remain true forevermore unless someone, of course, uh, shows that my perception of that was, was, was in fact incorrect. In other words, they uh, find an error in my proof, so to speak. So 
Um, but but if there's if there are structures that are uh, you know that there's there's some notion of, of of structure in mathematics, it doesn't necessarily require that we have any concept of time in order to conceive of them. Um, so that's what we mean by relationships. I think of mathematics as being essentially the study of pure relationship. Uh, whereas when we're talking about interaction, we're talking about something that that inherently has a temporal element. So, for instance, um, you know, when we're thinking in the first-person sense uh, of an experimental uh, process, there's before the experiment was done, then there's doing the experiment, and then there's after the experiment is done, and that somewhere along the way we went from not knowing something to knowing something. So, in that sense, the the idea here is, is that information is is effectively flowing from the objective to the subjective. And that the moment in which that happens is the interaction. Um, so in one sense, we can think about uh, fundamental theories of physics as being not just a kind of measurement process in the first-person perspective of the scientific method, uh, but also being a signaling process in the notion of, say, communication theory uh, or information theory. So in, in the sense that uh, there's an interaction, uh, we are implying these concepts of temporality. We're implying a concept of flow of information from uh, basically one place to another, um, that there's uh, other possibilities of what could have happened instead, and, and, and so on. Um, so in effect, when we think about interaction, we're actually implying a lot more than just, say, uh, structures in space. Uh, we're also implying forces in time and probabilities over possibilities. And so from these concepts, we can construct things like uh, information theory, communication theory, measurement theory, signaling theory, causation ideas, and all the rest of this stuff. But to be clear, and I wasn't clear when I read it, does your vision of interaction require an observer? I think requires an interesting word here. It's more like to say that an observer is an epiphenomena of the interaction. Now, what would that mean? Let's imagine before there were anything early in the in the solar system, so not that long ago in the history of the universe. Well, we're kind of have to go way back further. We've got to go all the way back to the Big Bang. Okay, so there's all right. Let's go. Let's go a couple days <laughs> we, after the Big Bang. We, we, no, no, no. Right, right to the instant. Right. So, so you have an empty universe. And now all of a sudden you've got. Well, maybe something. we don't have an empty universe. Maybe we don't have a universe at all. This uh, we could talk about this one for about two hours too. Sure, sure. Okay, let's let's take your version of. Tell the story. Go ahead. Let's go for it. I'm attempting to just simply create a, 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 a sort of narrative that allows for the the uh, the idea to, to just be apprehended at all. I'm I'm not necessarily trying to to claim this is the case so much as I'm just trying to just give a description. So if you if you imagine an empty universe that's just like completely just there, the notion of interaction as making a thing that is perceivable in that universe implies just even by the very action of imagination that that there's a there's when when as, as soon as we attempt to imagine a something there is ourselves the imaginer doing it and so so in a sense what i'm i'm effectively getting at is is that the concept of an observer is implied in the notion of interaction um and that in, to, to, to the degree that we don't have uh, a deeper substrate to think about uh, epistemology than ontology, uh, then to some extent there is a, uh, you know, a connection between these two concepts. And so therefore I, I sort of say, well, the, the same way that we know that there is the objective through the process of knowing, that we posit that there is a subjective through the process of knowing and that the process of knowing is effectively more basic than say the being of the objective or the being of the subjective and that there's really no way for us to know any differently than that.
But taking the you know view of a fairly naive realist, which is what I at least play on TV, as Murray Gelman would say, he was pretty confident the moon was still there before there was any conscious self to observe it. Well, if we if we have the uh, the supposition that conscious self resembles anything like you know human beings or or consciousness as we understand it, um, then yeah, I've, I would I would agree with your notion that the moon has a kind of beingness that transcends our uh, presuppositions about this. Um, and, and before people go forward and think, you know, well, I'm positing a kind of panpsychism here, you know, I'm, you know, on one hand, that would be one way to interpret what I'm saying. But on another hand, we could, we could just simply say that um, the notion of the being of the moon is, is if, we, if we're saying that it's non-contingent, right, that, that there's a kind of uh, perfected determinism about that, then, then in effect, you've, you've already said everything that you're going to say, that's the claim that's being made. But on the other hand, if we're if we're basically asserting that there's any level of indeterminism about um, the existence of something, um, then then to to establish whether or not it exists, we have to have an interaction with it. We have to actually uh, posit the potentiality of verifying that the moon does in fact exist. So you know, if you assert determinism, it's already there. Then you don't need the verification because you have the assertion. Uh, whereas if you're uh, talking about a smaller object, uh, maybe not something as large as the moon, but something, say, as small as a, as a single particle, um, you know, you have these virtual particle pair production kind of things going on. And the notion of whether it's there or not is actually really ambiguous. So, so in the sense to, to, to verify that something is there, therefore, becomes a kind of uh, essential aspect of the proposition. So in other words, how do we know that something exists? Well, what's the, what's the methodology by which we establish that? Well, you set up an interaction, and once you have the interaction, then you know one way or the other. Um, but in this particular case, the, the, the difference is, and this is the key difference, is that I don't need to make an assumption about determinism in order to do the verification. So even after the verification, for example, okay, I've established that at this moment in time, this thing existed. The interaction is taken as the as the basis of what is knowing, rather than the presupposition of of um, um, that it exists in the kind of deterministic, non-contingent way. Um, and 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 that's really all I'm trying to get to with with these with these distinctions is to, is to is to simply say what is the basis of our knowledge? Are we uh, being intellectually honest to say that the basis of our knowledge is first-person interactions via the scientific method or or things like that? That the that the epistemic process is is at least uh, consistent, uh, or are we going to allow for, say, in mathematics, that we're just going to posit some axioms and uh, move forward in terms of trying to determine what are the implications that these axioms have? And I'm not making a judgment that one way or the other is better or worse. It's just that we need to kind of know whether we're doing mathematics or doing physics, and that to some extent, it becomes really important to not get confused when we continue to do these practices. I guess my reaction to that would be that if you are looking at something from the perspective of an observer, and as we've known for, you know, at least since Kant and more so more recently, we know that our perceptions are not reality, right? We look up at the moon and what we're actually seeing is some photons reflected back onto our retina. Well, I, I need to interrupt here because what Kant actually said, and this is, this is you know, being very careful here, is that the perceptions themselves don't accurately represent the objective. They, like if, if we identify the notion of reality with the objective, and by the way, I would, I would say that's not necessarily the best way to go about this. But if, for example, we were to talk about what can we know from perception about the thing that we're perceiving, Kant was basically saying there's a fundamental limit about knowing what it is that's being, the, the characteristics of what's being perceived 
defined just in terms of the characteristics of what perception is. Correct. That's where I was going with my little description there. That's been well known, at least since Kant, that our perception is not anything like a full readout of reality. So, so here's the turn. The turn is, is that unlike Kant, which basically said, okay, well, the, the perceived is real. I'm basically saying, well, the perception is real. And that the notion of the perceived is something that we're in effect coming to know through the vehicle of perception and, and that there's, a, there's an asymptotic limit, as you've pointed out, that we can't know the thing of the perceived, but at least we don't necessarily need to make assumptions about it a priori. So, for example, we could, we could decide that the, uh, the thing to be perceived is prior to the perception, but, but that's an unprovable thing, right? To, to establish that something exists, I have to actually perceive it, which is a kind of interaction. So, therefore, we say that interaction is in some sense more fundamental than the notion of existence. And from there, it isn't too hard to say that um, the notion of interaction is actually even more fundamental than the notion of creation. And that if we really want to understand the universe, um, you know, on one hand, we could say the universe is a container in which is, there is all of this stuff. But then we can sort of switch gears and we could say, okay, well, wait a minute. The, the notion of universe is the concept that is effectively a pointer to three other concepts, exactly three other concepts, uh, creation, existence, and interaction. And that if we, know, if we were uh, hypothetically possible uh, through some methodology, perhaps, to know everything there was to know about existence, everything there is to know about interaction, uh, i.e. the laws of physics and how things happen and so on, um, and everything that there is to know about creation, presuming that that was knowable at all, um, that we would know everything there is to know about universe because the universe doesn't have anything other than stuff about creation, stuff about existence, and stuff about interaction. So if I had perfected knowledge of these three topics, I would therefore have perfected knowledge of the of the topic of universe because there's nothing that we can assert about universe that isn't some subset or some combination of knowledge about creation, existence, and interaction. So in, in this sense, what we're doing is we're basically saying, okay, if we think about it at the nature of the level of the concepts themselves, then, then we notice that there's a certain dependency relationship that, that to know anything at all about the nature of existence, I have to depend upon the nature of interaction to do that. And so therefore, we have to say that at least on a conceptual level, and the conceptual level at this point is all that we have. I mean, there's no other, you know, somewhere along the way, we have to actually ground our notion of ontology and epistemology in terms of either themselves or in terms of something deeper or some union of those things. Um, that, that in this particular respect, what we're basically saying is, okay, well, somewhere along the way, we have to actually reconcile the notion of the real as being in terms of the interaction rather than in terms of the things that are interacting. Yeah, you talk about proof, and I guess this is what I would call the manifestation of what I called at the beginning the philosopher's disease, which is the search for proof. And, you know, I often point out in these kinds of discussions that we can't prove very much. For instance, we cannot disprove the assertion that the universe was created five seconds ago with all of our memories in place and all ballistic objects in motion. And so that it seems to me a kind of tortured turn to say that the perception of the moon is prior to the moon, essentially, when it seems more parsimonious, at least, shall we say. And since we can't have proof of anything, don't have solid foundations, we have to use higher level meta rules to figure out what's useful. And what I call naive realism, the perspective, hey, yeah, the moon's there. And oh, oh by the way, we get incrementally better 
information about the moon via perception, originally by our naked eye, then with telescopes, and then with radio astronomy, and then by sending people to the moon and bringing back pieces of it, et cetera. And that, in that sense, the moon is prior to the perception. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, first of all, you know, as a craftsman, as a person who's done a lot of engineering and, and, and built companies and things like that, I have a tremendous appreciation for practice as being practice and that there's, 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 uh, there's this funny, uh, quote, quote, uh, you know, theorists, uh, theory believes that practice and theory are the same, but practice knows that theory and practice are different. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. Anyways, uh, the, the, the point that I, I think that, that, that I'm agreeing with you is, is that there are actual heuristics, um, that, that are very, very useful. So for example, uh, looking at the moon versus, uh, quantum particles, um, you know, the larger the thing is, the more the heuristic of it's going to be there when I'm not looking at it is actually just a useful thing to do. Um, whereas the smaller it is, you know, once you get to things that are super tiny, uh, the level of indeterminism becomes uh, prevalent. So now we can start to say things like, well, um, the smaller it is, the more indeterminism applies, and the larger it is, the more determinism applies. And so, you know, obviously at uh, mesoscopic scales, um, it, it makes sense for us to sort of treat uh, you know, large macroscopic objects, particularly things that are bigger than us, is not being influenced by anybody's choice or actions or perceptions or whatnot at all. And things that are smaller than us is maybe being, well, somebody made that and they had a choice about how they could have made it and so on. But the, the point here is, is that, you know, going back to the notion of, of proof a little bit. So, you know, we talked about physics and we talked about mathematics a little bit. And uh, although you didn't want me to get into the relationship between those, there is this nice little thing that that, that, that connects to the notion of proof. You know, there's proof of validity, uh, which is, you know, in a mathematical system, do these uh, concepts derive from these other concepts? So in other words, if I start with- Formal proof, axiomatic systems, yeah, essentially mathematics, logic, et cetera. Yeah, Euclid geometry uh, kind of stuff. Then in the other side, you have this notion of soundness. And soundness is not a provable thing, but it is a very practical one. So for instance, if I develop a, a model in mathematics and then I find a correspondence between this domain, the model of mathematics and some other domain, uh, maybe something in psychology or something in a steam engine or, or, or whatnot, and I say, okay, well, if I measure these things and I map those to these concepts in this model, and then the model computes this, gets this other set of numbers, and then these other set of numbers should correspond with these other things that I haven't yet measured, but I need to. Um, that, that becomes uh, where, the, where the mathematics goes from theoretical to applied. And so, in effect, if we're, if we're really trying to do good uh, metaphysics, and, and, and this is, this is uh, again, maybe a contrast with the way this has been thought about previously, but um, I'm actually much more interested in questions of soundness. I think that mathematics itself is already an excellent tool for developing questions of validity. But the, the idea here is, is that in the same sort of way, the category theory would effectively be kind of a generalization of the notion of how to think about uh, validity principles in terms of structures, that the metaphysics and the axioms and the modalities is essentially is a general notion of, of soundness in terms of how to correspond the foundations of, of one domain to another so that we can discover these places where applicability actually occurs. So, so in this particular sense, uh, you know, while on one hand, I can claim that Hey, there's a there's a certain kind of proof in, in an analytic sense. I can you know I can use a subdomain of mathematics to establish that uh, such and such a series of definitions result in such and such a series of, of theorems. Um, 
the, the notion of proof itself can become a, a somewhat more empirical practice. In other words, can we establish that there is a, a, a very good reason for us to think that there is a soundness relationship between a structure of concepts in one domain and a structure of concepts in another? In other words, what is the reifying power of the correspondences? So in this particular sense, what we're, what we're looking at here is, is, can we take a model from one world and use it to clarify the structure of the models of another world? And can we do things in such a way that uh, by making those correspondences, a sort of metaphorical process, that we can learn things about the world in which we're working, which would otherwise be very, very hard to do, um, in the same sort of way that there are some things that can only be discovered through firsthand experience and other things that can only be discovered uh, through uh, analytic practice, we are effectively using a, a kind of methodology that combines uh, the best of both of these to essentially say, okay, well, what is what is it that we can do to clarify our perceptions? And, and I realize I'm going on a long time here. I'm going to I'm going to stop in a moment, but I but I just want to fill in this last piece, which is that there is a kind of experimental process where we can test this notion of soundness. Um, it isn't exactly a proof in the same sort of way that would be in mathematics, but it's more of a proof in the same sort of way as, say, uh, the scientific method. So say, for example, I have a, a, an idea about what something actually means. I can take a, a huge body of literature that uses that concept, and I can take the, 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 the concept that I have, and I can use that to restructure the body of literature that uses that concept, and then submit that revised body of literature, both to the people who originally wrote it and other people who are reading it. And from that, basically try to ascertain, has that reconstruction of that underlying concept increased the degree to which everybody uh, understands those, those, th that literature, that body of literature? Did it actually improve the body of literature in the utility function of the people that wrote it and that are reading it? Um, and this is the kind of experiment which can actually be done to test whether or not a philosophy or a metaphysics, whether the definitions of the terms or the constructions and so on and so forth, actually do have reifying power. Do they increase clarity? Um, and so in, in this particular case, I can say, well, I've been doing you know private experiments of this kind for uh, going on 30 years now. And um, so far, it's worked really well, at, at least in terms of if you're, if you're using reifying power as an underlying metric as to... Uh, the quality of a metaphysics, the same way that um, you know, Popper uh, falsifiability and so on would 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 be a way of evaluating the success of a physics, or that uh, provability would be a way of evaluating the success of a mathematics. That, so far as I am aware, this particular body of metaphysics has, by a substantial margin, the strongest level of reifying power ever yet observed. Could you give me an example? I'm willing to talk some more about this. That would be really good. Give us an example of what you, first, what you, briefly what you mean by reifying power. I mean, I know what the concept of reification is more generally, but you're using it in a specific sense. I got a sense here. And if you have an example of this, this would be great. Well, the whole metaphysics is, <laughs> I mean, the reason why I'm working with this material is because literally the entire body of it is, is, is composed of examples. So, so it's, it's, there's an embarrassing large number of examples. One that I, I, I recommend as, as a kind of starting point is, is the incommensuration theorem. That's a fairly abstract example, but it, 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 it shows the ways in which these things can work in something that actually matters today. But on the other hand, you know, developing that will probably take uh, at least a half an hour of time. I don't know that I want to just do that right now as a response to just one question. But yeah, well, By the way, we're going to get to the incommensurate theory in considerable depth later. In some ways, I found that almost the punchline of your work, interestingly. 
I think of it as being maybe one of the most important elements of it. The ethics itself is another critically important, um, you know, sort of derived product. Um, but yeah, between those two, uh, it, there's 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 a tremendous amount of of what at least I've experienced as being really valuable and, and helpful in understanding things. So I think as far as you know, an example of what reifying power shows up as or what it looks like, I, I, I'll point to those things as forward examples. Um, but, but in the moment, just to clarify, what do I mean by reification power itself? So in this sense, um, the notion of reification is usually to take uh, something that's vague and to make it uh, more structure-like or more um, definite in the structural relationships. Often with a negative connotation that one has lost some important detail when doing so. Yeah, I, I, I hear that. And, and I, at, at this particular point, all I can really say is, is that I'm, I'm trying not to get into the realm of connotative judgments about you know, what's going on here. Um, you know, to some extent, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to characterize you know, what's, what's happening without basically saying whether it's good or bad to do that. Um, because obviously to say whether it's good or bad to do that would be to imply an ethics and the ethics itself is derived from this material. So to some extent, I, I have to uh, somewhere along the way uh, assume what I'm trying to, 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 to show. So going all the way back here without, without thinking about reification in the sense of judgment, I'm thinking about it purely in the sense of can we take vague relationships and at least clarify them so that they are somewhat more distinct so uh, in, in the same sort of way that a metaphor would allow us to basically take two uh, things that were otherwise unrelated and sure kind of correspondence, we can use the metaphor as a way of understanding each of them a little better. So in this sense, um, metaphors are helpful to understanding their, their educational devices. People use them as, as, as ways to uh, model things and to figure out stuff and, 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 and go about their lives. So, so in this sense, what we're, what we're really looking at is that uh, what, what, what characterizes a good metaphor? Well, we can think about it in the terms, like if, if we look at power itself as a kind of the concept of power as a metaphor, it's like a, in physics, at least it's a force that overcomes uh, a resistance in a given time. The more force that it overcomes over the greater distance that it has done so, in other words, it's pushing on a barrier and it pushes that barrier, uh, you know, hundred feet down the road. And it does so really quickly, then the more powerful it is. So in this particular sense, we can talk about political power being something like uh, can change the opinions of lots of people. And those lots of people really didn't want to change their opinion. That would be the resistance factor. Um, and uh, change their opinions really dramatically. That would be the distance factor. And it did it so really quickly. That would be the time factor. So, you know, a person that was really charismatic uh, could effectively be described as, in that sense, more powerful as a leader than someone who was not. And so, in effect, we can now start to say, okay, well, this notion of power as a metaphor can now be used uh, as a metaphor to describe the power of metaphors. I, I know that's kind of a trick, but, but if, if, if you think about it, it does actually work. So, so in a sense, we, we, we now have a way of thinking about a metaphor that is powerful is one that connects things that were concepts or phenomena or domains that were uh, widely disconnected from one another, connects them really, really well, and does so uh, in, in an immediate and visceral and, and, and kind of total sense very quickly. So, so in this sense, we've, we've now constructed the notion of the power of metaphor in terms of how insightful is it, how penetrating is it, how, how, how fully is it applicable, how extensive is it, you know, and, 
And did it connect things that, that were otherwise surprising to be connected? In rut speak, we'd say, how useful is it? Yeah, exactly. You know, can, can I take this thing and, and use it in a sense? Can I trust the relationships that this thing has brought to my awareness? Can I, can I act on it in a way that is reliable in the sense that the things that I do produce the outcomes that I expect and that it provides a uh, adequate basis of choice to make good and wise choices? So when we're thinking about reifying power, it's sort of like an extension of the notion of uh, what we think of as a powerful metaphor. It's basically like saying, okay, can we get to the point where we're looking at the essence of what this concept is such that we can now combine that concept with other concepts because we're perceiving that essence truly and well. So uh, effectively, the, the more that it has taken something that was really vague and turned it into something that was really clear, the more reifying power we're talking about. And again, you know, all of these are, are essentially aligned descriptions, aligned metaphors. We can talk about intelligence in similar ways. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that once you start to become skillful in this, uh, you begin to see all sorts of applicabilities. Models show up the same way in many places, and, and all of a sudden you discover that you're working with metaphors and um, things that have enormous reifying power. Of course, we also know that language itself is remarkably metaphoric. We go into you know, Lakoff and Johnson, et cetera. We're moving forward with our research, right? Well, guess what? That's moving from geometry or walking into applying it. To, I mean, uh, it's just astounding when you really realize how much everyday metaphor is built into language. And then we also have, you know, Wittgenstein. Of course, we go down that road for a long ways, but probably shouldn't, which is to what degree the language game can actually be used with precision. And I think both of those would say that it's really hard to build firm foundations. But as you were saying, one can at least use the standard of, is it useful? Yeah. And so in this sense, you know, rather than talking about reification as something that can be done in some sort of completed way, we're talking about reifying power in the sense of, can we make it more useful? So in other words, it has some useful to start with. And and by doing this, we make it more useful and they're more trustworthy and easier to work with. And you know, have we uh, converged to the asymptotic limit of quote-unquote perfect reification or perfect structure or perfect metaphors? Well, I think uh, it's the journey that matters here and not so much the outcome. Yeah, that's good. I mean, obviously the outcome is important, but if, we're, if, if, our, if our methodologies aren't consistent with the outcomes that we hope for, then, you know, to some extent uh, we're wasting our time. Yeah, and again, that falls into the category of, well, what was the word you used that distinct from proof? You had soundness? Yeah, validity and soundness. Validity and proof, of course, I'm familiar with, but soundness is good. That's a nice concept to kind of wrap these things in and somewhat congruent to my usefulness. Let's move on. Something else you've mentioned in passing in the book, this kind of moves scale a little bit from very fine grain to big picture, and then we'll probably come back down again to fine grain here in a few minutes. And that is, you reference Cartesian dualism and sort of where that stands in the history of the development of these ideas. Could you explain very briefly, and this is a concept most people who think hard about this space are very aware of, but some of our audience may not have dug into this, very briefly what Cartesian dualism is and what does your program say about it? So uh, very briefly, it's about the relationship between mind and matter or, you know, what is uh, substance in the world versus, you know, ourselves as, as beings in the world. And... You know, there's there's two huge philosophical traditions. Um, one of which basically says that substance is first, and bodies and minds are composed out of substance. Uh, and the other, uh, a somewhat more mystical or religious perspective, depending upon uh, which line of history you're looking at, 
uh, which basically says, no, we have this, this notion of deity or of, of, of the totality of consciousness that subdivides itself and into the beings that are us and that we project the world around us as a, as a kind of epiphenomena of this uh, consciousness emanation. Uh, so theories of the Kabbalah, for example, uh, uh, go in this direction uh, a bit more. Um, and, you know, from an experimental perspective, obviously, there's no way to verify one way or the other because, you know, anything that would be done in the experiment, uh, it's sort of like trying to verify uh, whether you're in a holodeck uh, on Star Trek, for example. How do you verify? Well, if the simulation's perfect, you wouldn't be able to verify it. Um, so, you know, this gets us into the, uh, the whole simulation hypothesis and things like that. Yeah, we did an episode on that two weeks ago with Robin Hansen, which was fascinating. <laughs> and it's a rabbit hole. At the end of the day, we have to acknowledge what we just don't know. Exactly. Well, so, it, you know, roughly speaking, we can say that uh, the simulation hypothesis is uh, sort of akin to the notion of idealism as a philosophical history. As a as a as a label for a category of philosophical history, and realism is a is a label for the philosophical ca categorical history of of atoms and 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 what we normally think of as classical physics. So, in this sense, you know these are two main theorems or ideas about what is and how do we know. In my work, uh, in contrast to both of these, is is that the, I, I think of it as effectively saying, well, the relationship between realism and idealism, i.e., the relationship between mind and body, is is actually the primary subject of study, right? So when we're looking at the relationship between the subjective and the objective, we're we're basically saying, I'm not going to posit realism, i.e., that the objective existence is unconditional, nor am I going to posit um, the subjective as existing in an unconditional sort of way. I'm in effect going to describe the relationship between the subjective and the objective as being unconditional. Uh, and so this gets us to say, for example, Descartes, which basically said, uh, you know, his famous uh, notion, I think therefore I am, is that the process of thinking is the basis by which we can establish the process of being, right? I think as a process to I be as an outcome. And that the outcome ontology in this case is dependent upon epistemology, knowing of thinking, uh, or in this particular case, a kind of perception. So, so in, in, in a sense, if we're, if we're to take Descartes seriously, we're basically saying that process is fundamental and that we can only really know anything about being uh, as contingent upon process. And whether that being is objective or subjective is essentially still contingent on process. And that to some extent later, even to distinguish between objective being and subjective being uh, is, is, is going to be, you know, that the, the notion of distinction itself is a process. Um, you know, to make a distinction is to do something and to create a change. So uh, in, in this particular sense, to, to, to really kind of, uh, you know, keep the concepts uh, at, at a relatively abstract level. I mean, if you, if you look at, say, for example, uh, uh, Descartes' program, you know, he basically had the idea um, you know, while he was in prison for, uh, you know, all the things that people put pr people in prison for, i.e. heretics and so on. I'm going to not take as, as knowable anything that I could have any possible doubt of. So he basically said, all right, if I could at least, even if I can think of a, of a way in which I can be, be deceived, uh, even in principle, if, if like a, a demon were to basically be, be manipulating my perceptions, um, and therefore create uh, illusions about what is, 
what is left that, that, that is perfectly knowable, that, 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 that there can be no deception about, that is essentially ground truth. And so that's where the I think, therefore, I am uh, statement came from. Um, but what I think is interesting about all this is, is that Descartes, for example, actually missed a number of things coming out of it, which are also uh, part of that ground. Uh, for example, uh, anything that is intrinsic to the nature of doubt as a process is also undoubtable. So, for instance, if we say that attribute A is going to be an attribute of every process of doubt, then the action of having doubt itself about the nature of doubt basically establishes uh, that intrinsic as essentially being present. Um, so, for instance, you know, if I if I say that doubt has, you know, a notion of something can be true and can be false then to have doubt about doubt is to have already presupposed the notion of truth and falsity. So, so in this particular sense, there's uh, you know, a kind of separate ground that can emerge from the notion of what are the intrinsics of process itself. And this is largely what the axioms and the modalities explore. So for example, if we're looking at you know, what is the nature of the relationship between mind and body or between subjective and objective, and we know that the nature of that relationship is intrinsically process, and we're basically saying, well, what are the characteristics that are inherent in the nature of process itself? And it turns out that there is this, uh, this idea that, that uh, is actually a very general one. When we look at the notion of process, it's actually a very, very primal concept. It's probably the single most primal concept of which it is possible to conceive at all, considering the conception itself uh, can be regarded as a kind of process. So in this sense, we have this notion called the root tautology, which is essentially to say, well, when you really look at it, comparison is a process. Um, measurement is a process. Signaling is a process. Uh, even to think about choice, change, and causation are all uh, essentially uh, examples of or, or manifestations uh, of, of the underlying notion of process. So therefore, if we can characterize the nature of process itself, we, we've learned something about the intrinsics associated with the process of doubt. We've learned things that are intrinsically true about the nature of the relationship between the subjective and objective. And from that, we can actually re-derive or re-ground the notions of both ontology and epistemology or realism as a way of thinking and idealism as a way of thinking. So in effect, it turns out that the relationship between realism and idealism is itself considerably more primal than both the notions of realism or, or idealism and that even the notion of establishing you know, anything about uh, any of these things effectively pre presupposes this process ground, uh, much in the same way that having doubt about doubt presupposes the concept of doubt. And so that's that's a lot of of you know sort of how these things sort of fit together from a historical point of view, and also sort of um, uh, what have I done with all of this? Got it. I'm gonna do a little sidebar here because it appeared in order more or less in the section about Cartesian dualism. And then we'll go on to the bigger question of mind from brain. Can you talk a little bit about new age as another alternative going forward? Oh, God. This is where you want to get out the philosophical gun. <laughs> Metaphysical pistol. The metaphysics gun, yeah. <laughs> I think you and I both share this, this notion that um, you know rampant commercialism and hypocrisy is something to be avoided at all costs. Absolutely. And so when you when you mentioned the new age, I get that sort of same twitchy feeling that I imagine you also have. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, let's not go. Let's not go there. People listen to the show, know my views on all this shit, and we're probably pretty similar, right? Let's move on to this is the so interesting question. And we'll eventually at the end of our journey get to the so-called hard question. 
but this is not an attempt to go there, but to talk a little bit more generally about mind from brain. This is what Descartes kind of put it this way, as listeners know, I'm pretty involved with the cognitive science community. I serve on various boards. I still do a little research myself, read all the current research at the cutting edge of the cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience view on consciousness, even have my own theory of consciousness. And I will say that in the world of cognitive science, people interested in the question of consciousness, every single one would declare themselves a anti-Cartesian. That's not true of all philosophers, of course, but of all cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience people, they would say with some level of confidence that mind is an emergent manifestation of brain. And then not to say that's not that there's all to say about mind. That's the important distinction that mind itself then opens up a whole new domain of inquiry about things that are not physics necessarily. But that the Cartesian argument that mind and brain are different substances, which somehow communicate through what was it, the pineal gland or some ridiculous thing, is just not to be taken seriously. So sort of at that level, where does your flag come down about mind and brain? Well, this is a, a that's a big question. I mean, give me uh, first of all, I've I've written a whole lot of stuff about this, and I can send you um, papers and things uh, that I, that I've done in this space. Yeah, let's not quite go there yet, because I did read the paper, the hard question, as the last thing I read. That'd be the last thing we talk about. But just you know, the shorter form. Let's not go down all the way to the weeds. We'll do that at the very end of our series here. So let me try to really just create a kind of snapshot, nutshell sort of view. And, and I think that that might make it easy for us to talk about at least uh, some of these things without getting into the weeds, as you say. I think that a lot of the neuroscience that's looking at the relationship between mind and brain is looking at it in terms of observed neural correlates. And you can really show that there is a correspondence between what's experienced in a, in a subjective way and what's happening in, in brain tissue. Um, I'm, I'm not debating any of that. I, I think that to some extent, we may get to a point where we have really good um, neural correlate understanding and, and uh, maybe quite nuanced understandings of uh, perception and consciousness and so on uh, on the basis of these, these, these correlations. Uh, but when people are asking the hard problem, a lot of times they're not exactly clear about what that problem is. But, but if, if, if we're to sort of jump to the conclusion, so to speak, even if I were to posit, for example, uh, perfected knowledge about neural correlates, uh, that for every subjective experience, I could describe it in terms of an objective phenomenology and brain tissue, um, I still wouldn't have answered the hard problem, which has more to do with why is this moment this one? So in other words, the correlations themselves don't actually say anything about causation. Causation has a temporal element. And so in effect, I can say, well, if I do this to the neural tissue, then this person's going to have this experience next. But we still haven't answered the question of why they're having any experience now. Like in the theory of correlation itself, it, it, it doesn't distinguish between today and yesterday or today and tomorrow. From, from the correlation perspective, I should be able to predict with complete accuracy or just to even just directly know through some sort of examination through the hyperspace of all time, uh, read off what the lottery numbers are. Like, you know, why isn't it the day after tomorrow? What What is it specifically that makes today today? Um, so in other words, how do we distinguish, like on what basis do we distinguish between the past and the future? Well, 
we all have a subjective experience of, of, of that there is a now and that the first person perspective is not the third person perspective. And unfortunately, when, you know, no matter how good our information is about neural correlates, it doesn't give us the philosophical tools necessary to answer any of these questions. And so that's why the hard problem is hard is because the, to some extent you need a different tool set in order to address it. Um, and, and, and that's kind of, you know, I guess my overall stance about thinking about these sorts of things is that to, to, to a large extent, when people are looking at these sorts of issues, uh, mostly I just feel that they're asking the wrong question or don't really understand what they're trying to get to. You know, certainly I'd agree with you that the reductionist neural correlates thing, while somewhat interesting, isn't even getting close to the interesting stuff. You know, the fact that we can now demonstrate that you probably have a Lady Gaga cluster of neurons and we put a little voltage on them. The concept of Lady Gaga, the broader concept will come to mind. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> and it's actually true. It's been verified. But it actually doesn't get even close to the questions that we're thinking about here. But fortunately, there are people now doing work a big jump up. And that is, you know, thinking about what is consciousness in terms of a dynamical system, right? It's not a static view. It's, a, it's essentially a, a set of highly both complicated and complex machinery that is doing something. And I would say that in this space, I tend to follow John Searle, who's a quite subtle philosopher of consciousness, not a neuroscientist or a cognitive scientist, though he knows a lot of cognitive science, not so much neuroscience. And, you know, his perspective is, I love his quote, that consciousness is much like digestion. There, you can't actually put your finger on it and say, that's digestion. It's Instead, it's a process that involves various organs of the body that, you know, uses the, the mouth, the tongue, the esophagus, the stomach, the liver, the colon, etc. And digestion is this thing, and it's intimately driven in biology, because if digestion doesn't work, guess what? You die. And he says, consciousness is the same. It's not a thing that you can point to a neural correlate. It's rather a process, a dynamical, high, very high order dynamical process that's essentially a dance in the brain and the body, by the way, and is very biological. And we do know it's expensive in both energetics, a fair percentage of the brain's horsepower is spent in consciousness and also in probably even more so in genetic information space, the amount of genetic information to code the underlying proteins that then give rise to the dynamical system which produces this many attributed system of consciousness. Just out of curiosity, do you happen to know how much, and I'm asking this question because this is an information need, how much of the genetic coding describes the structure of the brain as in which brain tissue areas are connected to which other brain tissue areas? More than just the proteins themselves, but literally like the entire constellation of, of the structure of the neural system, like the you know, how much of the connectome is encoded in the genetics? Of course, this is the fucked up thing, is that the answer is zero directly, right? Directly, but indirectly, there's, 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 there's structures of tissue that, on, at least on a macroscopic level, I mean, you know, we, we, can, we can compare brains to one another and the actual tissue, and they, they don't look completely different from one another. The, the, the folds are in different places, but the connectivity patterns have a lot in common. And then, you know, again, this is so subtle because the problem is that all that the DNA programs for is proteins, essentially, right? So you think that is the source code or more like the assembly language. It then runs through the ribosomes, which produces the proteins and other related supporting chemicals. The chemicals do their dance 
produce the activity of the cell. And then the cell has its own behaviors in terms of, for instance, where do the axon, closer to your question, the axons of a given neuron, i.e. the long extension, is reacting to a series of chemical fogs, essentially, as it's developing and growing. And these chemical fogs are given off by the neurotransmitter emitters. So that's why I say it's a very long way from raw genetic information to the connectome, though obviously one begets the other. So to say exactly how much, we can't say, but we can say it's got to be a lot. I'm sure it is. I mean, I, I guess to, to just make the question a little more specific, if, if you happen to hear or know somebody who's doing work uh, in this area, I'd certainly be interested to hear more. I can ask some of my people at MIT. I'm on the board of the Brain and Cognitive Science Department at MIT, and I'm sure we have somebody there who would at least have an opinion. So I will ask that question and I'll get it back to you. Anyway, back to Searle, you know, consciousness is a biological process that's expensive, both in energy and genetic information space. Exactly how much? Probably don't know, but it's got to be a lot. And it has a purpose. There's a reason for it because things that are energetic and have high genetic costs obviously have a reason. And I have my own views on that, which is that it's a convenient hack to reduce the combinatoric explosion of choice, which is interesting to touch back to your idea of choice. And so I tend to look at consciousness in a very unromantic, unmystical way and say that it is you know, a process not much different than digestion. I like to add the rut corollary, and also often has the same final output. <laughs> <laughs> and from that perspective, it does not kill exactly the hard problem, but it makes it, the perspective of the hard problem, I think a little bit different if we assume that this is just a biologically optimized system for doing something that allows organisms to successfully reproduce. Let's take that all the way to its conclusion. So first of all, not disagreeing with you about uh, you know, the relation of, of consciousness and process. And process as mediated by biology the same way that software may run in hardware, right? So uh, you know, leaving, leaving all that aside and um, basically just getting to the notion of process itself. Say, for example, we were to take as perfected the notion of process and consciousness, that there's an identity there. And even the notion of process and biology is, to some extent, uh, maybe even perfectly coupled. For the, for the purposes of what I'm uh, wanting to do, it, it, it doesn't matter. Somewhere along the way, we still have to reconcile the notions of the intrinsics of the process. So when I think of the notion of process, or when I think of the notion of interaction, or remember I mentioned that notion of root tautology before. So I can, I can look at comparison as basically being kind of a template concept for the notion of interaction as a component concept of the notion of process. So in effect, one way we can uh, conceive of the notion of process is in terms of interactions. So you can think of interactions as being sort of like the atomic constituents of process. And to some extent, you can treat the notion of interaction as directly isomorphic with the notion of process. And in this particular sense, uh, again, for the questions that we're asking, we don't need to care uh, whether it's atomic by composition or not. And by atomic, I'm just simply meaning unsplittable, i.e. that the notion of either the notion of process is unsplittable because it's directly no, uh, equivalent to the notion of interaction, and the notion of interaction is unsplittable because uh, effectively the component parts of it, although necessary and sufficient to make the, comp the concept of interaction uh, or the concept of comparison, wouldn't be able to, you can't take less than these 
uh, things. It's like quarks in uh, subatomic particles. If you if you separate the quarks, you don't have the particle anymore. So, um, in effect, there's this notion of process in terms of patterns in space, force in time, probability and possibility. And that if we're if we're wanting to understand the notion of comparison, well. You know, again, the same sort of template shows up. It just has slightly different terminology. It, it, it cleaves the system in a slightly different way. Uh, this case, we have subject, object, sameness, difference, uh, content, and context. And that basically, regardless of how we think about process, one or another of these uh, divisions into six subcomponents is effectively going to be uh, necessary and sufficient in order to be able to reify the notion of the concept of process at all. So, um, in in this particular sense, we can, uh, you know, again, in, in in a lot of this material, what I what I'm doing is I'm developing this a bit to the point where we can say, okay, these six concepts together completely subsume the concept of process, or completely subsume the process of interaction or of comparison, um, and that the pattern of how these assumptions occur are actually. Uh, you know that, that it's the same pattern. It's the pattern described by the the axioms and the modalities directly. So in in, in this particular sense, um, you know, to, to to bring this all the way back to thinking about you know consciousness as a process and what does all of this tell us about consciousness as a process? Well, in the same sort of way that time is a intrinsic to the notion of process, it's an intrinsic to the notion of consciousness. Um, you you asked about. Uh, you know, theories of quantum mechanics and interpretations of quantum mechanics earlier. Um, and, and, and so one of the main observations that has been made, um, you know, using the metaphysics, you know, as, and again, as an example of the kind of reifying powers, is that the, the concept of consciousness itself is bound to the concept of time. It's also bound to the concept of uh, hard random, i.e. that there needs to be some notion of uh, potentiality. Um, so, you know, that uh, probability over possibility aspect, and that the that 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 you can't really think about the the notion of subjective and objective, i.e., that 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 the fact of there being a subjective is itself directly connected to the notion of this temporality, to the notion of process, to the notion of that other things could have happened. So, in in, in this particular sense, I, I think that even with uh, really strong uh, as you said, uh, process correlations between consciousness and biology. And I, I like that you mentioned the digestive system simply because, um, you know, an awful lot of our actual mood and state of being comes from, you know, how well we're digesting food. That, that in effect, there's a, uh, that there's still this underlying hard problem having to do with uh, the selectivity of the notion of locality, the selectivity of this particular locality uh, in time and space and possibility. Um, that is a kind of symmetry breaking that the theory itself of, of process uh, as described in a purely physicalist sense doesn't actually provide the tools for. You know, the, the more that we look at uh, physics and biology and chemistry and, and, and those kinds of things and we come up with really, really good third-person models for describing them, uh, we still have this, how do we get a first-person perspective from a third-person orientation? Um, it's really easy to see how we go from a first-person perspective to developing a third-person understanding of the world, i.e., uh, the scientific method giving us a way of of having recordable knowledge that's shareable and all that that has a degree of objectivity associated with it. 
But going in the opposite direction, what's the process that moves us from a third-person perspective to a first-person perspective? And that is, of course, a different order of thinking than, than, than that which was uh, initially involved in the scientific method itself. It requires a different kind of tool set. So in, in, in this particular case, um, you know, while I can agree with the direction that you're going and actually follow you all the way to the asymptote of that line of thinking, uh, the questions that are being asked about um, where does the symmetry breaking happen to basically make it so that consciousness is localized to this place, to this moment, and this possibility of what could have happened uh, remains op an open question. Let's wrap it here for today because we're going to get into just this question late in our process in some considerable more detail. And Forrest and I agreed before we started today that almost certainly the amount of material to cover from his work is way more than I could do justice to in 90 minutes. And it'd be at least two and possibly three episodes. And I would say that's going to be at least two episodes and probably three. So you ain't seen nothing yet, listeners. We're getting ready to dive into some of the deeper concepts in Forrest's work. I think this show was mind-blowing. Wait till you listen to the next one. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up here, Forrest. Excellent. Yeah, awesome. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.